1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
2: Earlier this summer, my father, Jonathan, and my stepmom, Marilyn, came to visit me in Newark, New Jersey. They were coming to spend some quality time with me and my son, but their timing couldn't have been better. I had news to share. So I sat them down at my kitchen table. All right. So, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you guys because, um, anyway, so I was sitting there, you know— the Two whole- days earlier, you know, I had gotten an email on Ancestry.com from someone saying he was a distant cousin and that he has something to tell me. Our family and Daddy Grace's family. So I asked him, hey, you know, nice to hear from you. I see we have some matches in common. Do you know something that I don't know? This cousin, his name is Dennis, he lives in California. He'd heard I'd been trying to find out if Daddy Grace and I were actually related. So he started telling me certain ancestors I should look at. He said, let's start with your matches to the days. You matched Stephen Day and Patria Day. So I began following the line back, trying to figure out who he was leading me to. Now, I had never even heard of the days, But as I look up the tree, I see my great-grandmother, Izalina, the mother of my papa. She was born in Brava, Cabo Verde, but came over to America in 1920, a young mother with two small children. She passed on before I was born, so I never met her. But really, I don't know much about my family beyond my papa's generation. Like my great-grandmother, Izalina, they were no longer alive by the time I arrived. And he says, I wonder why we didn't match. And I'm like, what is he talking about? So I do a search (laughs) to figure out what this guy is talking about. And ta-da, I now have the answer, but here's the thing. See, there was someone else connected to the days, someone also very important to me, someone I've been searching for, someone my newfound cousin Dennis wanted me to see. So with my parents sitting there, I finally shared the news I've been looking for, for years. So essentially, Daddy Grace would have been your grandmother's cousin. So her father and Daddy Grace's father were first cousins.
3: Wow, that is crazy. Wow. Wow, wow, wow.
2: That's right, I felt it all along. Daddy Grace and I, we're family. I'm Marcy DePina, and from iHeart Podcast and Forza Media Group, this is Sweet Daddy Grace.
4: Now, children,
2: we are indeed glad to be here this Before we talk more about this revelation, let's back up to early January 1960. The year rang in a feeling of change. There was a sense that something big was happening. Cameroon had just become an independent nation, and 16 more African countries would follow later that year. JFK had announced he was running for president. 250 Black residents of Greenville, South Carolina, peacefully protested the segregation of the town's airport. And yes, you better believe there was, and still is, a house of prayer in Greenville. And Motown's first hit record, Barrett Strong's Money, That's What I Want, was just about to enter the Billboard 100, changing the sound of pop music forever. Though he was almost 80 years old, Daddy Grace seemed to be at the height of his power, he still traveled frequently, still preached. He was still very much a leader of a thriving church. There's a letter he wrote to his congregation dated January 8, 1960, from Los Angeles. He did this kind of thing often, sending missives to his followers from wherever he was in the world, checking in on them, making sure that they were on the right path. He writes, As my time on the West Coast is far spent, I must leave. I am expecting to leave Los Angeles, California, early Tuesday morning, January 12th. Be ready, because I am still flying. This is my sixth week here, and I must go on to another kingdom. He then reminds his congregation that God is there to guide them and signs the letter Much love to all, Daddy. The letter is like many, he wrote, but the date, January 8th, 1960, is significant. Later that day, while at home in Los Angeles, Daddy Grace suffered a major heart attack. He refused medical attention, but finally, as he lay in a semi-coma, elders from the church took him to the Metropolitan Hospital. So when I read that letter now, I have to wonder... Did he know what was about to happen? He told his congregation he planned to leave Los Angeles in a few days' time, on January 12th, to go to another kingdom. He kept that promise because in the early hours of January 12th, 1960, Daddy Grace took his very last breath. And he did make one final voyage east. A few days later, Daddy Grace's body left Los Angeles. It was raining as the train pulled out of the station, which followers took as a sign. It often rained during convocations, but Daddy Grace had said that water was a blessing. In his native Cabo Verde, rain is always celebrated as a blessing. Six separate viewings were planned, all on the East Coast, in House of Prayer strongholds like Charlotte, Washington, D.C., Newark, and of course, New Bedford. The procession was covered in newspapers like the Boston Globe and the Charlotte Observer, as well as in a six-page spread in ebony. Men in fresh-pressed white shirts stood guard around the bronze coffin, reported to cost $20,000. Thousands of people, both the religious and the curious, black and white, came to view the body and pay their respects.
5: My father would not have been happy if he knew that Aunt Rhoda had taken me. I didn't say a word My to them. Aunt Judy
2: was one of those people. She was a nursing student in Connecticut in 1960, but happened to be back in Massachusetts at the same time the funeral was happening in New Bedford. Her whole life, she'd heard so much about this man, all the whispers, all the criticism. And now, here he was. My great-aunt Rhoda... Always an adventurous type, told Aunt Judy they were making a stop at the house of prayer for the public viewing. And they weren't going to tell their family they were going. There was
5: quite a procession. And then there was music and there was a the smell of food. and
2: They were curious. So they entered the church with the rest of the crowd to see Daddy Grace, his body in repose.
5: I can see him now, and his body was under a really sick glass. And he had like a green suit that uh, looked like it was cutaway, you know, the tails, and had braided piping around the edges of the lapel and so forth. And his hair was down to his shoulder length.
2: But what she remembered most, still to this day, were his hands.
5: It looked very uncomfortable. Didn't look like normally you see the hands folded, but they were just on his thighs, and he had long nails, and those were painted gold. It was just seemed like, you know, this is not appropriate. This isn't
2: very reverent. I was actually quite shocked when my Aunt Judy told me the story. I know my grandfather would not have approved, and it was surprising to hear that my beloved Aunt Rhoda insisted that they go. I wondered why. From everything I had heard, my papa, Aunt Rhoda's brother, seemed to be so against Daddy Grace, his church, and the influence on other family members. And of course, that lingering story of how this self-described boyfriend of the world tried to lure my Nana, his wife, to join his congregation. So what motivated Aunt Rhoda to pay her respects to a man the family had tried so hard to distance themselves from? The idea of it all got my head spinning. The years after Daddy Grace's death were not easy ones for the United House of Prayer. It was reported that Bishop Grace's estate was worth between $16 and $25 million when he died. Many people assume that this was an exaggeration, but it's hard to know. Up until Daddy Grace's death, the House of Prayer didn't file regular annual tax returns. That's common for registered religious organizations in the U.S., but for the IRS, it certainly made it very difficult to understand the House of Prayer's finances, as well as the economic relationship between Daddy Grace and his church. The church's real estate holdings were also complicated. Daddy Grace liked to exaggerate how much he paid for things when it suited him. And his bookkeeping was, shall we say, confusing— He and the church had a bunch of different lawyers and tax advisors, but not one person knew everything. The IRS was clearly not a fan of Daddy Grace's complicated business structures. They were certain he hadn't paid enough taxes. They didn't believe he was running a legitimate church. They had been after Daddy Grace since the 1930s, and a month after he passed away, the IRS sued his estate for almost $6 million. It was a big enough lawsuit that it made the Washington Post, as well as into the discussion in a U.S. House of Representatives subcommittee. Perhaps my dad's assessment of Daddy Grace being like Donald Trump was not too far off. And on the religious front, things were complicated too. Though there was a detailed package of church bylaws, there wasn't a clear succession plan. Soon after Daddy Grace's death, elders from the church voted on a new leader, Walter McCullough, who joined the House of Prayer as a young man and once had been Daddy Grace's chauffeur. The vote, however, was instantly challenged. Other people wanted to lead the church and argued their case. Bishop McCullough was eventually voted back in, but those years were chaotic, and the IRS drama tied up funds and limited the new bishop's ability to travel and make moves. And as happens in many families, most contentious was Daddy Grace's will, which had been written in 1948 and not updated since. He divided around $70,000 among 12 of his family members, some siblings, nieces, and two children. The rest went to the church. As you might imagine, many people weren't happy about this. His first wife, Jeannie, and daughter, Irene, sued Daddy Grace's estate, they eventually settled for a reported $200,000 each. His son Marcelino also sued, but his case, for one reason or another, was dismissed. Some members of his family even signed a publishing contract, perhaps hoping to capitalize on Daddy Grace's story. But as far as I know, the book never came out. And despite all the turmoil, the church persisted. From a spiritual perspective, the church claimed that the spirit of Daddy Grace jumped into the body of the new bishop, now called Daddy McCullough, and this ordained him to lead with the same power and authority. The foundational bylaws that Daddy Grace established were the blueprint for the doctrine and business of the church. Although these were rocky times, the house that Daddy built stood firm. When Daddy Grace died, a lot of things were left unanswered for his congregation, his family, the public, and the Cape Verdean community. A lot of things were unanswered for me, too. Now I had proof that we were related through my father's great-grandfather, José Encarnação de Graça González. Stick with me, but here it goes. José and Daddy Grace's father were first cousins. Simply put, if you trace down through the generations, Daddy Grace is my second cousin three times removed on the de Pina side of my family. My father didn't even know his great-grandfather, Jose, but he did know Jose's daughter, his grandmother, Isolina. She was also Daddy Grace's second cousin. All of these family members lived within walking distance of each other on the island of Brava, which at the time in the late 1800s, had a population of around 8,000 people. But if Isalina knew Daddy Grace was family, she kept it to herself. As far as I know, she never told anyone. But why?
3: The more we share, or that you're sharing with us, about our ancestry and connection to SDG, makes me... um, come to the realization that, that the Dapenas that were fairly secretive and that there are um, some deep, deep secrets within the family.
2: That's my dad again. I was talking to him and my stepmom, trying to understand why we had only just learned about this connection.
3: How again would Iselena not know? I mean, the, again, the place is only right. this big. Right. I mean...
2: The <laughs> only thing I can come up with is that they just didn't want to admit that they were related to him. That's that's the <laughs> only thing that I can come up with <laughs> because some of the family members clearly felt like this church was wacky yeah. and they didn't want anything to do with it. Mm. You know how Cape Verdeans are. Yeah, Reputation yeah, yeah. is everything, so it's like...
3: Right. right. And at that time, I could imagine, you know... Between the, the work situation, trying to raise a family, to stay employed, you didn't want to mess with that. You were already a foreigner and a foreigner of color. You don't want to bring any of that to you, you know?
5: And We also have to remember that we're part of a time when everybody reveals everything about themselves and there's, there's just all this... Where even my own parents and certainly my grandparents, they just, they kept things to themselves. That that was sort of the social mores. I mean, it's just deliberately not putting everything out there the way we do now in terms of identity and personal problems. And Mm. so the fact that Isolina never talked about it doesn't mean that she didn't
2: know. I think my dad and stepmom are right. My family must have known about this connection, but they didn't want to publicly admit it. I was glad to have that confirmation that there was a blood relation. And I still wanted to learn more about the man himself. I couldn't believe he was actually so terrible, just a little eccentric. With so many people that loved him, he couldn't be that bad. But who knows? Maybe I was wrong. The problem was... I was having a really hard time finding anyone who actually knew him personally. Daddy Grace died in 1960. So at this point, many of the people who knew him have already passed away. And those who were still around, like his grandson, who was a pastor of a different church, or my cousin, who was one of Daddy Grace's maids when she was a young girl, didn't want to be interviewed. I tried the connections I made at the United House of Prayer, But they have a very strict media policy. And because of that, no one would speak to me on the record. I'd almost given up hope. But finally, I found them.
6: My name is Marilyn Gonzalez.
2: You have a nickname?
6: Yes, it's Fuffy. <laughs>
2: That's what I heard. I heard you had a nickname, Fuffy. Who calls you Fuffy?
6: Everybody. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Can I call you Fuffy? Yes, you may. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. The Cape Verdean nicknames. I have one, too. What, what uh, is yours? Tuquinha.
6: Tuquinha. Yeah,
2: my father is Tukey, so. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so first, if you could just tell me, what is your relation to Daddy Grace?
6: I'm, I'm his great niece. My grandmother and Daddy Grace, they were brother and sister's.
2: Fuffy is 80 years old, but she looks much younger. She still lives in New Bedford, the city she grew up in, in the historic home that Daddy Grace purchased for her grandmother, Sylvia. She's elegant and gracious, and the moment I stepped into her house, she offered me some coffee and lingresa rolls. When she was a little girl, she'd seen a lot of Daddy Grace. She'd seen him preach, eaten meals with him. Her grandmother, Sylvia, was Daddy Grace's right hand, traveling with him frequently, preparing his meals, and assisting in the spiritual leadership of the church, bands, and kitchens. What are some memories that you might have of him? Well, as a young child um,
6: growing up, I remember Daddy Grace coming to New Bedford quite frequently, and he bought this beautiful uh, home on County Street Beautiful mansion. It was a huge place. I used to enjoy going there just to go around the grounds, the gazebo, and and he had a pony. And I remember my mother and my Aunt Marie, they were the cooks when he came home. And I would help them set the table for Daddy Grace. And he would always have, you know, company come and sit with him
2: to eat. Daddy Grace seemed to be constantly on the move traveling around the country, visiting his congregations. But New Bedford always held a special place in his heart, especially during convocation season, the church's annual celebration.
6: July would be the start of convocation, and a lot of people would come from the south, and he'd have services at the House of Prayer. It was always open seven days a week. Had to go to church. I used to go to church every night with my grandmother. And I always enjoyed the services, you know, the music and his preaching. and It was very charismatic. Really, the services at the House of Prayer were really invigorating. A lot of the young people that lived in the neighborhood they would be outside dancing <laughs> while the music was playing in, in, you know, in the house of prayer, and the members were shouting and having a good time.
2: I want to talk to you a little bit about Daddy Grace as a religious person. Can you tell me a little bit about his faith?
6: Well, he was very religious, and when he preached, he would quote from the Bible without looking at it. And he was a good preacher, I right? enjoyed his services because he was interesting and he would explain everything that was in the Bible to you so you could understand it. He loved people, he, he really did. And he just, I don't know, like a magnet, they loved him. You know, and he would go
2: to different homes and pray for them. But what I really wanted to know from Fuffy, what was Daddy Grace like beyond his public persona? Who was he to his family? So I have to ask you this because I'm curious. Did Daddy Grace have a Cape Verdean nickname?
1: mm
6: no. Not that I know of. Well, his name was Charles Emmanuel Grace. But, you know, my grandma called him Charlie. Oh,
2: see, I uh, didn't know that. That's interesting. And what did you call him? Dad. Dad. Yeah.
6: You know, the family, we all called him Dad.
2: But Fuffy pointed out that this name, Dad, Daddy was controversial even within the New bedford Cape Verdean community.
6: They said, why, why do people have to call him Daddy Grace? He's not your father. He was criticized mainly by his own people, the Cape Verdean people. A lot of them didn't believe in him. They didn't believe what he was doing was right. And at times, you know, people made fun of him. You know, the way he dressed, his long hair, his nails. There were people in the family that didn't want be recognized that they were related to him, but you know I loved the way he dressed. I loved his suits; they were beautiful, and his big top hats.
2: That's one of the things that I loved the most about him was that he seemed unapologetic. He seemed to just be himself. He was and you know, growing up in a Cape Verdean community, I know how harsh Cape Verdeans can be, mm-hmm. and all it takes is one time for people to say something about you and it sticks with you for the rest of your life. Exactly. And I know how, you know, tough that can be. So Mm -hmm. I always wondered how he may have felt about having that criticism from his own people. That must have been difficult for him.
6: He felt bad about that. He says, Mm -hmm. my own people don't treat me right. Why? And it was sad. I, I know I had to be hurting for him, but he just kept plugging along and just built... The churches everywhere. It was all the church people.
2: Though I was hoping Fuffy might be able to tell me about his friends or some hidden pastime Daddy Grace had, I wasn't totally surprised to hear this. He had a strained relationship with much of his family. His two marriages had ended in divorce, and he was partially estranged from his two children. The family he had strong relationships with, people like Fuffy's grandmother, his sister Sylvia. They were all members of the church. He was good to those relatives. He purchased a large building in New Bedford for his family to run businesses out of. He bought homes for his parents, his nieces and nephews, his siblings, or would support them financially. But his focus and his life was the church. I just had one final question for Fuffy. Is there anything that you would like the world to know about Daddy Grace that maybe people don't know about?
6: Well, I I would appreciate it if people would really respect who he was and respect what he did. He didn't do it for himself. And I you know just wish that they would remember him as a generous, kind person and religious man, which he was, and not criticize what he did or make fun of what he did. I just want him to be remembered as a decent human being, which he
2: was. Right before I finished up this episode, I was able to speak to another one of Daddy Grace's great nieces, Marlene Tavares. Marlene is 90 years old now and has spent much of her life working in New Bedford as a housing activist. Something she says she got from Daddy Grace who also worked to make sure his congregation had affordable homes. She welcomed me into her home in the housing development she helped build in 1974, and immediately we felt like family. I met her only daughter and her great-grandson. We spent time looking over family photos and her collection of articles, documents, and books about her family, including Daddy Grace. Her grandfather Caesar is the same Caesar Grace that lived right across from my great-grandfather Nola Locke. He had helped Daddy Grace build the very first house of prayer in West Wareham. Marlene grew up in the House of Prayer and had a special connection with her great-uncle. I loved him. I
7: think of him as my grandfather. I remember one morning, early in the morning, he got up came to our uh, apartment and made me breakfast, made hot chocolate and everything. And usually people would make him breakfast. Instead, he made ours. That's
2: amazing. Yes. You'd never think of Daddy Grace like that, right? Because, you know, everybody always says, oh, he has all these people attending to him. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yes.
7: That's
2: yeah, so knew beautiful. You how to make
7: it, hot chocolate, yep. Yeah.
2: It must have been sweet. Yes. But Marlene remembers seeing the stories about him in the press. The lies, the exaggerations, not at all reflective of the man that she knew.
7: And I used to say, oh, man, I know but I know. I wish I could get out there and straighten it out and everything.
2: (laughs) That must have been frustrating. But yeah. he never really corrected the stories either. It seemed like he just said, "Forget it. I'm not gonna."
7: Yeah, he just let them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he never did. He used to know that a lot of the stories were not true. He knew that, and he just would let them. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
7: He said it would work out. Yeah, it did.
2: So he had a lot of faith. Yes. In my conversations with Fuffy and Marlene, one thing that stood out to me was that they both talked about how generous Daddy Grace was. Which is important because I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Yes, his focus was on making sure his congregation was taken care of. But in addition to the church and helping his family, he contributed to other things he cared about. For example, in 1947, Cabo Verde experienced a terrible drought, one of the worst on record. But Daddy Grace during that year raised collections to send money back there. I'm certain that without that aid, many more people would have died during one of the worst famines of the century. He also regularly sent bidons, or barrels that are stocked with supplies, back to Cabo Verde.
7: Here in New Bedford, at the waterfront, he would have a ship, and he would go and order and buy stuff and fill that ship up to send to the old country. Always to death, And he'd go down the waterfront and make sure that everything got on the boat and make sure, and then wave it goodbye. Yeah, he never forgot his people, never.
2: That's the kind of information that's been lost amid the talks of his riches and flamboyance. That's the kind of information that falls to the wayside when people would rather sensationalize all the things about Daddy Grace that caused a stir. It's the kind of information that gets omitted from history when people villainize him as a cult leader and reduce him to an opportunist. I wish Daddy Grace would have talked more to the press about the charitable deeds that he and his church had done. Because in some ways, Daddy Grace's own silence gave space for rumors to grow. I think I understand why Daddy Grace didn't give many interviews. He'd seen too many times how his words and actions were twisted by the press. But this secrecy is also part of his legacy. It's part of what makes him an enigma, which has made it that much harder to uncover the truth and to find people who could talk about the kind of man he actually was, like his great nieces, Fuffy and Marlene. I mentioned this to my cousin, Jonathan, the one who first told me the story about Nola Locke threatening Daddy Grace with the ax. Well, I have to say that in doing this podcast, a lot of people didn't want to talk to me. A lot of people that were either in the church, some of our family members didn't want to talk. They'll talk, but they don't want to be recorded. They don't want to be identified. It's no wonder why, with all of the controversy around Daddy Grace and him being in the papers all the time and it not ever being positive, no wonder why nobody wanted to be associated. Yeah,
5: exactly. Especially
2: knowing how conservative Cape Verdeans can be. Daddy Grace, to me, he, he reminds me of a couple of people, but he... It reminds me a lot of Muhammad Ali. Oh, really? Because he had these zingers and he would say things like, apparently he used to brush his hair. And he would tell people that if you bought the pomade that they sold in the store, that your hair would be long and pretty like his. And he never shunned away from being called wealthy. He never shunned from being called successful. He didn't hide it. He was like, yes, I am great. Mm-hmm. And that makes me think of Muhammad Ali because everybody said he was cocky and all this other stuff. People didn't like him for this, right? Because right. they didn't like his mouth. right? But he stepped into his greatness and he wasn't afraid of it. And he was like, I don't care who knows. I am going to say that I'm the greatest. And he made himself the greatest. He sure did. He sure did. And I think Daddy Grace was the same exact way. I think he made himself great.
5: You know what that makes me think of? Um, my mother always saying... Don't say, I can't do this or I can't do that. She's like, you can do these things. And don't just burn yourself by cutting yourself short. You should be speaking these great things in existence for yourself. Mm -hmm. Words
2: have power. She said, speak it into existence. Words do have power. This is one of the mantras in my life. Power to transform a poor immigrant from Cabo Verde into a millionaire. But words also have the power to start rumors or to be withheld, to keep secrets. I figured my dad would have some perspective on this as well. So, you know, one of the things that's come up is, you know, why did I want to make this podcast and why I wanted to understand the connection between our family and Daddy Grace. And the main reason why was because of the stories that I heard as a kid, like this, this story that was always swirling around, this mysterious figure that tried to take Nana on the road with him, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, there's definitely a connection, but to me, it matters less if we're actually related to him or not. Like it's mm. less, of, it's not really about that for no. me. And
3: like, and, and yes, that's right. It's, uh, it's, it's about sharing his legacy. I mean, obviously a very, very, important person um, to the Cape Verdean community, regardless of of what people may think. Hmm? Let's face it, a a person of color (laughs) in the early 20th century, doing what he did, (laughs) and to be that successful, and ultimately help many, 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 many people deserves exactly what you were doing.
2: <laughs> I think so, too. That's why it's important to me, because there is so much controversy around him and because so many Cape Verdeans really were embarrassed by him and the church is so closed and afraid, afraid of right, right. talking about things that I feel like if I don't talk about this, his story is going to get lost completely. Mm. And the other thing, too, that like really has come up for me a lot throughout making this is the idea of family history and how the elders didn't talk about a lot of stuff. Like, I never heard anybody really talk about really where they came from or who their people were or and then if they didn't pass on those stories to you then how would you be able to pass them on Mm -hmm. to me? Mm -hmm. And so this idea especially when slavery is involved and where people's um, origin stories are, you know, completely obscured because of history. Like, it's so easy to lose your history.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. I just get the feeling that there was like a lot of things that maybe were painful. Like, maybe they left painful situations, like asking Papa, Do you want to go back to, to Cupvid? And him being like, No, absolutely not. All right. All right. Did he ever talk to you about what it was like for him as a little kid?
3: Yeah, but not that much, really. Um, He saw nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. He was able to escape and really didn't look back. Didn't look back at all.
2: This podcast has been way more difficult than I ever thought. I thought this was going to be easy. I was like, I already know everything there is to know. I have family stories. I have this story. I grew up right around the corner from the house of prayer. I know all there is to know. I really did. I thought it was going to be easy. And it's actually been emotional Hmm. so it's been hard to delve into the memories Hmm. but it's also been really great to do so what do you think it would have been like if nana would have went with daddy grace like because it sounds like i don't know it sounds like she might have gone
3: well i think that's right i think that there was you know there was some definite interest in going um and her father was just, no way, you're not going. <laughs> um, but let's face it, I mean, here was a young woman who was raising a family, cooking and washing clothes and doing all this stuff. That would have been a nice thing for her to do. <laughs> <at> <laughs> to that go time. off
2: with some rich man in yeah, a, rich, right. and a know, big fancy car.
3: Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, I could see how a young woman would think. That that's fun? You know, like, yeah, let's go do this. Um, but a very naive young woman also. Um, so I, I definitely would un- understand my grandfather's concern because if it was you and I had to make that decision, I would make the same decision.
2: <laughs> you have chased Daddy Grace down with an <laughs> right. axe because that's what they said happened.
3: <laughs> right. So... You know. I get it.
2: I get what my dad was saying because, if I'm being honest, there has always been something weighing on me the entire time that I've been making this podcast. My papa, he died when I was eight years old, but I still look to him for guidance. He had detested Daddy Grace. He thought he was an embarrassment to Cape Verdeans and to his family. And so, even though I didn't agree with him about Daddy Grace, I was worried about having his approval. I was hoping my dad might have some insight. You know here I am highlighting the story of this man. What if he wasn't a good person? What if he was a bad person? what if and then I thought about Papa and how much he means to me and would he have been upset with me that I'm making this, you know, podcast? And I was like, oh, I would never want to disappoint him or do something. Right,
3: Being being the man that, that he was about being honest and truthful, and he would support the idea of seeking the truth.
2: I hope so, because that's yeah. the goal, right? I'm not trying to prop Daddy Grace up to be no. somebody that he's not. I mean, I want to tell the story accurately, and but without judgment. Mm. And just present the facts and allow people to have their own, you know, understanding and opinion of him. What do you think about me doing this podcast? I think
3: it's fantastic to take on the challenge of a man who wasn't very well documented and to, to find what kind of person he actually was and tell the story is honorable. (laughs) So that's what I think.
2: Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Thank
0: you. I love you.
4: (laughs) The other folks, you can pass by. Goodbye. But you can't pass by the house of prayer for all people and then get into heaven.
2: On January 7, 1960, the day before his heart attack, Daddy Grace recorded a live sermon on record. Technically, it was called You Must Be Born Again, but most people call it The Last Sermon. It was played as his eulogy in New Bedford. Church officials said no one but Daddy Grace should speak at his own funeral. He has a light Cape Verdean accent. It reminds me of my papa's voice, and a lot of the old-timers in the family.
4: We want to speak a little more — get a little more language. Wake him up. Hey, Amen. When we all get saved, we don't pull one another, do we? Because we're brothers and sisters. We don't work hard for a little bit together, stretch. Because you put yours here, I put mine here,
2: I still have so many questions for Daddy Grace. Like, what he thought about the Cape Verdean community's rejection of him. Like, how he felt about his life and his purpose in reconciling being a human being and a man with a spiritual mission. If he was happy about how things turned out. If he might have done things differently. What he thinks about how the church carried on with things. And more importantly, What he might think about me, and me doing this podcast, and telling his story. And how he felt about my immediate family, my nana, my papa, my Nola Locke. I might not ever get those answers, because Daddy Grace didn't write a memoir. He never gave personal interviews. His family never did end up publishing any books about him. And his church, the United House of Prayer for All People, it's pretty closed off to anyone who isn't a member. Except for this sermon, we don't have much of Daddy Grace's voice. You got a little
4: house of prayer baking powder. or A little house of prayer yeast cake. Stir so roll up together, eh? Oh, we'll have something. But my little bit, your little bit.
2: But I do hope now that in my own way, I've given Daddy Grace a way to tell his story. Sweet Daddy Grace is a production of iHeart Podcasts and Forza Media Group. This show is hosted by me, Marcy Depina. It's written and produced by Marissa Brown and me. Our story editors are Daryl Stewart, Duncan Riedel, and Zarin Burnett. Editing, sound design, and theme music. By Jonathan Washington. Additional editing by Matt Russell. Show cover art by Viviana Salgado of Studio Creative Group. Fact checking by Austin Thompson. Our executive producers are Marcy Depina and Jason English. Special thanks to Will Pearson, Nikki Itori, Ali Perry, Tamika Campbell, and Lulu Phillip of iHeartMedia, and all of my family members who talked to me for this show. My ancestors, the United House of Prayer for All People, and the countless number of people who shared their memories of Sweet Daddy Grace with me. Thanks also to Dr. Marie Dahlem and Dr. Danielle Brunsigler, whose academic work on Sweet Daddy Grace has been incredibly helpful. And finally, I wanna thank Bishop Grace himself for choosing me to tell his story. For more information on Bishop Charles M. Grace, check out the website Sweet Daddy Grace and follow me at Marcy DePina on all social platforms.
0: Hello!
5: Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke.